biggest mistake I see uh, when I meet founders is they have no idea what they're looking at. Every business owner must know their numbers. The truth is that all revenue dollars are not created equal. In my view, accounting is about accountability. I've been called a dream killer before. Welcome to Add to Cart, the podcast that Express delivers all you need to know in the fast-moving world of e-commerce. Every month, Nathan Bush from 12 High and an e-commerce industry expert will share the news, research and insights that you need to know to keep you at the top of your game. And of course, keep your customers adding to cart. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode five of Add to Cart. My name is Nathan Bush, and I'm the founder of e-commerce consultancy, 12 High. Welcome to 2020. I hope everyone had a fantastic break and are now ready to hit the ground with some vigor, uh, and let's do it all again. Joining me on today's episode is Jason Andrew from SBO Financial. Now, Jason is a chartered accountant and a business advisor, but please, please don't switch off just there. He's also been known as a dream killer, which is a fantastic way to introduce someone. But he's actually one of the most entertaining, humble, and intelligent people that I've ever come across in e-commerce. The way that he explains financial accounting for e-commerce businesses blows my mind, and he's actually simplified a lot of the concepts that I originally thought were just too difficult to master. And he shares a lot of it on today's episode. Now, if you're sitting there going, well, I don't look after the books, I'm not an accountant, I don't do the finances, why should I listen? I think it's really important that everyone has some level of understanding around how e-commerce businesses work from a financial sense. Because it is so tempting in an industry like ours to sit back and just assume everything's going to grow. Because it has. If we're honest, it has grown for a long time. But it won't always, and it's really important to understand where those warning signs are. So, there's two reasons here, and I think if you're a designer, a developer, a data analyst, or a merchie going, well, this isn't relevant for me, I think it's hugely relevant for you because, one, you need to understand the financials if you are presenting new business ideas and making business cases. By having this understanding, it'll make your business cases and your opinions carry so much more weight, especially to your founders or your CEOs. Secondly, from a personal and a career perspective, you need to understand the businesses that you're in so that you can make great career decisions and keep growing yourself. Now, before we jump into today's episode with Jason, I just want to thank our partners, Shopify Plus, who bring you this episode. And we have another fantastic playbook that they've written, which we'll share with you during the episode. Also, if you are interested in e-commerce news, trends, and insights, especially from Australia, 12 High have a regular newsletter called High Mail, where we publish something called a month in review, where we collate all the stuff that you need to know from the e-commerce industry, and we make sense of it so that you can apply it in your businesses. We also let you know when these podcast episodes are out and give you a little bit of background information um, that might not be included in the podcast. So, if you want to sign up to that, go to 12 High. 12high.com.au forward slash HIMAIL, H-I-G-H-M-A-I-L, and it is free. All right, on to today's episode. I'm joined by Jason Andrew from SBO Financial. Let's kick it off. Hello, Jason. Welcome to Add to Cart. Thank you, Nath. It's a pleasure to be here. Mate, we've been talking about this for a little while. Uh, For those who don't know you, I'm not going to introduce you as the accountant because... (laughs) 
<laughs> we may have people just turn off straight away. Mate, can you explain exactly um, what you do and, and how you're a little bit different to, to most accountants going around? Yeah, well, well Nath, I am, I am a proud accountant, actually. I'm a, ch- a proud child of accountant. Um, so, I guess my background, I've worked in uh, business and corporate advisory, g- generally working with high-growth businesses. Um, and again, 2015, started my own accounting business called SBO Financial. Um, now, we are accountants, but we don't do tax returns. So, make that very clear. <laughs> uh, what we do instead is we, we do a thing called operational finance. And we're, what that means is basically we're embedded with our clients to help them get on top of their numbers. Uh, so that ranges from bookkeeping to cash flow management, jump on top of the KPIs, all that fun stuff that really keeps you in business. Um, so, yeah, so fundamentally, you know, what we say is accounting and bookkeeping or traditional accounting and bookkeeping is very backwards facing. Um, and operational finance is what we do is, is very much focusing on the forward looking insights and the strategies and the plan that really helps you grow a business. So. Beautiful. And you work with a lot of e-commerce retailers? Yeah. it's. I mean, we, we, we work with three types of business models. There's SaaS, professional services, and e-com. And e-com is a really interesting space. And, and they're actually a fun business to work with because there's so many different levers that you can really pull in the business. And there's so many different nuances and complexities, which makes it interesting to work with. And just given a lot of the retailers that we work with are in a high volume, high sales, you can start to tweak little things in the business and really get dramatic results to the bottom line. So, it's, they're really fun to work with, yeah. Awesome. Now, I'm going to plug your book because you didn't and I gave you the opportunity, but you didn't plug your book. <laughs> um, like I said, I'm, I'm 50% of the way through it and it's such an awesome read. Um, so, it's Stuck, Stuck Naked Numbers. Yes, that's and- it. Yeah. Beautiful and available on Amazon. And it's so funny, the amount of people that I've been speaking to recently and they're like, have you read Jason's book? It's amazing. Um, so, that's the plug. And the only reason we're plugging it is because we might refer to it throughout the podcast, but a really great read for those looking to uh, get more of Jason's knowledge that, that you'll share today. Pumped. So, pumped. Let's start with the numbers. So, when you are working with those e-commerce businesses, what are the most important financial metrics if you just went... Great. I'll open up the books. Where do you start to know if an e-commerce business is healthy? Yeah. So, if you look at most founders of e-commerce businesses, the, the first things that they'll tell you that they look at, and you know, this is my experience empirically and probably most people, is that look at their Shopify account to look at how much sales they've got. And then they'll look at their bank balance, right? <laughs> so, how much cash yeah. I've got, how much how much of sales. And so, generally, they're the two things I look at. Um, from when I look at a set of, a set of accounts or the zero file, um, I look at the accounts similar to a digital market would look at dig, uh, Google Analytics, right? So, and what I look at specifically are five metrics. So, I look at gross profit margins, um, free cash flow, uh, the cash conversion cycle, uh, return rates, and discounts. So, these are five specific metrics that I really hone in on if I want to get a really strong or good vibe of the financial health of the company. Okay. And you talk a lot. We might dive into a couple of those. Let's start with gross profit because there's a number of, of ways of measuring profit, right? And you talk a lot about this in your book. Why have you picked gross profit? So, gross profit, in my view, is the most important metric of every business. I think when people think about the size of companies, they always look at revenue, right? So, everyone talks about, you know, growing and scaling revenue and taking over the world. And, and you know, look at the media, everyone's talking about, oh, we made, you know, a million dollars of sales this month and we're scaling and scaling. But, but no one rarely talks about gross profit margins, which actually are more reflective of the financial health of the business. And I'll explain why. So, you think about like everyone thinks a dollar is a dollar, right? Like one dollar is the same as another. Um, the truth is that all all revenue dollars are not created equal because your margins might differ depending on what you sell. So uh, 
when I look at a company, um, most founders I work with think that their gross profit is just the margin they make on their product, right? So if I sell widgets at 10 bucks, I sell it to the market for 20, that's a 50% gross profit margin. Like, oh yeah, cool, I'm making money, right? But then they forget to consider all of the fulfillment costs, the, the warehousing costs, the merchant fees that are paid. And so all of those costs, which are typically absorbed by the merchant, uh, start to erode into that GP margin. So from 50%, that can drop to 20%, right? And, and a 20% gross profit margin business is, is fairly low. It's not really healthy. Um, and yeah, if you just to look at um, some simple break-even analysis and, and just kind of taking a step back to understand what a healthy business look like looks like, you need to sell a lot to make a profit on 20% gross profit. So um, I find that's a really the most important metric and, and probably not really appreciated by a lot of founders I work with. What does a good gross profit margin look like for e-commerce? Yeah, for e-com businesses, generally anywhere between like 30, 40, 40 plus percent is pretty good. And keeping in mind, that's net of all of the, the cost of sales, the true cost of sales. That's the merchant fees, logistics, as I mentioned earlier. So, if 40% plus is, is very healthy. Um, you know, I've, I've seen businesses kind of dip into the, the kind of the low 30s and, that's fine because people, if your product is a commodity product, for example, you can't really charge a premium price for that, which is why I love D2C brands where um, you can charge whatever the market will bear. Uh, and it's good. You're, you're in the supply chain, so you're skipping the middleman, you can go straight to customer and wear that margin. So, uh, but yeah, for some products, you just can't charge a high margin uh, depending on what you sell. So, uh, yeah, so generally kind of 35 to 40% is, is acceptable. Anything below that, you really want to start to think, well, you know, why are we doing this or um, other, other ways that we can increase that margin? So, as a common argument you come up against there is to say, that's nice in a, in a Nirvana world, but we're actually a volume business. How do you come up against those kind of arguments? Yeah, and, and there is nothing wrong with the volume business. Uh, I think you just need to really take a step back and really appreciate how much volume you need to really achieve to make it worthwhile. Um, you know, there's there's a, there's a thing about thing I love about economics is that there are certain laws in the in the finance world which just are true, right? And if you're selling a product for fifty bucks, um, so if you're selling a fifty dollar product for forty dollars. Um, you're not going to make up your profits by, by volume. You're just not, right? Because it just doesn't work like that. So I think by doing a simple break-even analysis, by really understanding what true numbers you need to be generating to make it worthwhile, that, that's usually a sobering, a very simple tool, but very sobering experience for the founders I work with. Um, because then again, you know, a, a lot of the people have like really grand ambitions to take over the world and scale, but uh, you're, you take a step back and think, oh, wow, like think of the, you know, customer acquisition costs to, to get that market share. Think of all the work you need to get there. And, and then people go down the rabbit hole of, you know, funding and VCs and stuff, which um, mm. is a dangerous one, I think. <laughs> yeah. And is that break-even analysis something that has to be pretty complicated or is it the kind of thing you can do on the back of a napkin just to see if an idea is viable? It, yeah, back to the napkin break-even analysis is usually the first thing I start with when I will work with people because I, I found that a lot of first-time founders don't even do that, which is frightening to me because as an accountant, it's the first thing I would do, right? Mate, we're retailers. Just get in and do it. <laughs> Just do it. Yeah, make it happen, right? Yeah, I mean, you, your first off is like, well, first, it, it comes in the planning process, right? Work out, well, how much can I can I charge for this product? How much is it cost me? And then you quickly work out what's called a contribution margin. margin sorry. So that's basically... Um, you grow, very similar to gross profit. So we call it gross profit for now. And what you do is, is you work that percentage out and then divide that percentage by your fixed costs. Um, so fixed costs like your rent, your wages and all that sort of stuff. So that will tell you like a dollar value of sales that you need 
in dollars just to break even on, on the fixed costs that you've got. And then you can break that sales dollar um, by the average sales price and then get to a unit. So then that unit price, sorry, that, that unit number of sales will then tell you how many you need to sell just to, just to cover your costs, basically. Um, you know, I've run that process for, for a lot of clients recently, particularly, um, you know, after Black Friday, <laughs> um, okay. to, to, you know, to, to really work out, well, you know, was it worth it? Um, if we continue this kind of discounting regime, you know, what, what volumes do we really need to make up and sell just to make it worthwhile? Yeah. Yeah, great. And I think that's a really great tip for those who are thinking about starting a business, but also that are currently in the business to go back and do that break-even analysis uh, really simply just to see where you sit. And you've given some great um, kind of benchmarks there on what that GP should look like. Where, When you open up the books and you look at the figures, what are the areas that often ring the loudest alarm bells for you straight away? Is there, is there some part of those financial figures where you go, I know if I look here, I'll be able to tell healthy or not. It's a really great question that you've raised because generally when I look at a set of files, I need to do a lot of work to clean up the data just to get into a position where I can do some basic analysis. So what I mean by that is most uh, business owners work with an accountant or bookkeeper who are very much focused on tax compliance. So um, what they're focused on is you know your, pro- your sales, your net profit and what's the net profit required to do your tax return, right? To calculate your tax. And so there's not a lot of thought or detail made in terms of how you structure the, the stuff in between, like make sure you're structuring your chart of accounts correctly to make sure that you, your expenses are correctly going to cost of sales, making sure your overhead expenses are correctly allocated. So a lot of the time, and so when I look at a set of accounts, generally a really poorly structured data file or just wrong, in, incorrect information is really telling of the financial habits of the company. So if it's crap data, garbage in, garbage out, same analogy, um, generally that's the, the first warning sign. Like if your books are a mess, I, I hands and heart tell you that got, whoever's running the business is flying blind, right? They have no idea what's going on. And again, they resort to the cash at the bank metric, right? It's like, a, if I got cash in the bank, that means I'm good. Uh, the risk with that is obviously the money in your bank account is not always your money, right? So, you know, that's wages, that's super, that's owed to your employees, that's the ATO money. So, um, cash at bank is a really bad way to run your company. <laughs> look at your zero file, look at your financials. <laughs> and I've learned running my own businesses that don't ever tell your partner or your family how much cash is in the bank because they think you've got a much bigger business than what you've really got. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And, you know, that's, that's that rally distortion fear where, uh, you know, you see that bank balance and, and you know, you know, right? But for, for most people who probably don't, have a strong grasp of financial literacy or they maybe just don't appreciate it. They just think, oh, there's a bunch of money in a bank account. And what do you feel? You feel cashed up, right? You feel really rich because you're like, whoo, money to spend. And then they spend it. And then these people, you know, buy Range Rovers and, you know, buy a boat because their business is crushing it. And then, yeah. and then suddenly your, your September buzz is due and, uh, <laughs> realize, oh crap. <laughs> I have to pay that sign out. So. Yep. Yep. I think there's a lot of, lot of hard luck stories around that. And I've heard a lot of them recently. Um, let's talk more about the e-commerce model and some of those factors or some of those costs that lead to e-commerce retailers hitting their margins. We've really come into a clip model for e-commerce, especially in the last five years. You've got a lot of people taking clips straight away based on sales. So you've got your e-commerce platforms. A lot of them are taking clips now where before it was more of a license model, which you could plan. You've got your payments, obviously, your uh, credit cards, but also your afterpays, and everyone knows how much afterpay take. Um, 
which is good and bad. And then you've started to get warehousing, especially now that you've got more reliance on 3PLs and they can take a bit of a clip model as well. How do you recommend setting up your product pricing with this in mind? Do you kind of, if you were starting again, do you take all those clips into account or do you just make one big assumption that the overall clip will be X Yeah, that's a really great point. So I'm going to um, say a term which is kind of sexy at the moment, it's trending, but fundamentally is is just accounting unit economics, right? I'm sure, I'm sure you're here on the internet or everyone enjoys to throw around unit economics as a term. But basically what that, means is trying to work out at, at, for every widget that I sell, what is, what are the, what are the clips? Like what are the true costs associated with that, with that unit? Um, and what's my sales price? Now, everyone should do an exercise. Even, you know, I would do this before I even considered starting a business. <laughs> do this process. We work out uh, again, pretty simple. How much can I sell the product for now? And, and where are the clips taking out that are going to eat into my margin? So the product costs, the merchant fees, you have to pay, et cetera. So what then what you're left is, is, like basically a gross profit per, per widget, right? And, and that's really the, the true indicator of where, where your, your margin should fit. Now, what most people don't do next is they, they think, okay, the margins kind of make sense. Let's start the business. And then 12 months later, they realize that the margin that's actually being, that they're actually generating is very different to what their, you know, economics process was. And they're like, where the hell's the difference? And then they realize, oh, I forgot about this. I forgot about that. Oh, we discounted a bunch. So that, you know, that, that's, a, that's, that went and so um what, what i generally recommend is you should always go back to a budget like you always have a source of truth somewhere that you know well the, here's here's the assumptions i made in my business always go to that spreadsheet or, or that analysis and always reference your actual state of affairs against what, what it should be um and, yep. and that process itself is is almost like a point of reflection to think okay is this What's changed? What were, what assumptions did I make were they wrong? Um, and then helps you decide, well, you know, what do I need to tweak my business to make it worthwhile? What do I need to change? Um, and so accounting in my view is, is seen as this boring kind of numbers thing. But in my view, accounting is about accountability and it's about keeping you honest to a source of truth and keeps you humble as a founder to, because it's real, right? Numbers don't lie. <laughs> Yeah. And you wonder why accountants are unpopular when you say things like that. <laughs> what retailers well, want to be held to account? Come on. Oh, you know what? Well, I've been called a dream killer before. I used to be very, I know, I know part of my, part of me, my role, my persona, I guess part of my job is I need to be blunt, right? Like, because yeah. the facts are the facts and this is your money, right? This is your financial health and your position. And this is real stuff. And business can destroy lives if you don't manage it properly. And I've seen it so many times. And so, you know, I've been called a dream killer and I felt that <laughs> as an advisor, I felt, oh, that's real. I don't want to be known as that guy. So, I went, but I went down too far. The other end where I was a bit softer, I wasn't probably giving the hard-hitting advice that I should. So, I've kind of had to like change my, my style to kind of be, be blunt, be honest, but provide, you know, a way forward as opposed to just saying, no, kill it, <laughs> move <Yeah>. on. <laughs> oh, and, I th- and I think it's something that everyone wants to hear, like um, – one of the best quotes that I found in your book was when you said, revenue is vanity, profit is sanity, cash is reality. And I think just reframing things like that for people is to go, oh, yeah, I've actually, and we fall into these bad habits and you just kind of slap us around a little bit and go, guys, just focus on what matters here and don't overcomplicate it, um, it, it which I think it, is really refreshing. Exactly. And I think, you know, business fundamentally isn't that complicated. And I think people like to make business complicated, but it, again, fundamentally, just the, the best business models are the most simplest, right? They, 
simple. There's no distractions. It's just like we know our market, we know our product, we know our distribution channels, and we just do it, right? Don't get distracted yep. by bright, shiny things or this new whiz-bang object, whatever, whatever the, you know, the, the marketing and software gurus are, are flogging nowadays. But um, yeah, just, <laughs> just stay disciplined. And again, look at your numbers because they keep you disciplined. How was your Black Friday and Cyber Monday? If you're a Shopify merchant, I dare say it was pretty bloody good. Shopify merchants sold $2.9 billion worth of goods across 175 countries over the Black Friday Cyber Monday weekend. That's a 60% increase from last year. Where Shopify excels is in those sales days where they take care of tech to allow merchants to take care of the selling. Um, And that's why their clients love them. If you had not such a great Black Friday, Cyber Monday, it might be worth considering whether you are on the right platform. Shopify Plus have a handy commerce evaluation guide that walks you through what questions to ask and what you need to consider when choosing the right platform for your business. You can download the guide at shopifyplus.promo forward slash commerce guide. That's shopifyplus.promo forward slash commerce guide to get your hands on the guide today. When you have said when you said about being out there and putting your opinions out there, one of the things I've noticed that you've had really strong opinions about recently is the three PL model, and you've actually published a couple of articles around that and what retailers should be considering. And um, I think you've got a pretty strong view one way or the other around three PL. Yeah, so three PL is it's a it's a big strategic question, right? So um, third party logistics for for those who are new to the the acronym, but. You know, fundamentally, as a business owner or as a business, you can't be an expert at everything, right? So every business has a sort of core competencies. Or, you know, if I, if we talk about a brand, uh, you know that, oh, I know where they fit in the category of the market because they, they excel at these certain things. So as an example, uh, Apple, you know, think about Apple. You don't, you don't think about Apple for how good they are at, you know, building their computers or their iPads. You think about them as like they're really customer centric. They've got great design and they're innovative, right? So they're the things that you think about as, as, Amazon, as Apple. Now, contrast that to Amazon, you don't think about design in Amazon. You think about, damn, they're really efficient. They've got really good fulfillment. Um, they're, they're really good, easy to talk to, they're easy to deal with. So Amazon's core competencies are very different to, to Apple's. And so my point is, is every business should, you know, should consider what their core competencies are in their company and what they really want to be known for and fundamentally double down on those. And what that means is everyone's got limited resources. We all work within constraints. So you need to pick and choose what you're going to be really, really good at and outsource whatever you're not going to be good at because there are other businesses who have core competencies of the stuff that you suck at, right? It's just like strengths and weaknesses. So 3PL, um, long with the way of saying 3PL is a really good way of outsourcing, you know, the boring back office finicky stuff um, of getting your product out to customers, the picking and packing, all that stuff, which, you know, is time-consuming, it's manual, um, and it's just not a good use of people's time if, if your business is, you know, creating great products and getting to, to your customers. Now, when it comes to considering 3PL, um, you know, we, we have clients that do have 3PL. We have some that just do it in-house and, you know, there's pros and cons and it fundamentally it comes down to a numbers thing, right? So, work out at what point does it make sense um, to to partner with their 3PL provider because they do come with a margin and they need mm. to make money as well. They're a business. Um, mm. But, yeah, consider all the costs. So, um, you know, the freight, the, the warehouse rent, and then think of all the labor that you're paying. So, all your staff that you've got in the warehouse running around to try and pack stuff, um, you know, that's a real cost of business. Um, you know, yep. if you outsource that, maybe they could be doing other things in your company which add more value uh, rather than packing boxes. Yep. 
And I think it's very easy to look at 3PL options, especially Amazon fulfillment, and look at the number on the webpage. And yeah. sometimes it can be upwards of 10% um, ish. And that seems really expensive, right? But if you don't do your own cost analysis on what it's costing you to fulfill, you might be surprised by how much it's actually costing you to fulfill. Exactly right. And, and you look at it, the biggest the biggest costs there are, are wages and rent. Like rent, you know, maybe you consider instead of having a warehouse, you know, you cut 50K a month or 20 grand a month of the warehouse bill, you know, move into a, just a normal office. And, uh, you know, you suddenly you save that in your bottom line. But also the wages, again, like all your staff that you're employed mm-hmm. just to pick and pack boxes, um, you know, get... Yep. Get them to do other things in your business, or you know, or the sad thing yep. making redundant. Yeah, I think there are, there are some businesses definitely who are using shipping and fulfillment as a competitive advantage. Whether it's writing personal notes, whether it's the way they package things up, whether it's adding a bit of surprise and delight to that. And I think if you are doing that, you are playing in a really nice area at the mm-hmm. moment because most people treat that moment that it goes from the warehouse into a courier's van as just stock standard and I think it's a nice opportunity to stand out but if you're not doing any of that I think you absolutely need to look at what are the other options if you're just a stock standard put it in a cardboard box and get it out yeah there's better use of your time absolutely I agree we talked a little bit about Black Friday what did you see from your clients or what are the murmurings from your clients post Black Friday Cyber Monday this year do you think Firstly, was the appetite there to participate in it? And secondly, how are they feeling post the event? Do you think they'll come back again next year? Black Friday is an interesting concept because and I don't know whether I'm just aware of it because we're working well, well, more with uh, you know, e-com retailers or it's just a new way that's hit Australia because you know it's like Halloween. Like you know, 10 years ago, no one was really celebrating this thing, but now it's a thing. And uh, Black Friday was was really big. I saw a lot of ads and just walking down the mall and, you know, there's all these shops, even just bricks and mortar shops participating in Black Friday sales, which I found interesting. It was an observation. But I also saw a lot of ads pop up on my, my Facebook or my Twitter with 30, 40, 50, even 60% off goods, right? And I'm thinking, wow, those companies are not making any money. <laughs> like you really start to question, well, if you're knocking 50% off your, off your retail price, Matt, you either you're ripping people off with your standard product, <laughs> right? Because if you can you can bear to absorb you sell your stuff yeah. at half price, like that's crazy. Um, or you're you're losing money on every on every sale, right? And so, mm-hmm. you know, I think the the biggest thing about Black Friday is not just you know the discounts uh, of you know that you're giving to your customers and the effect on your bottom line, but it's also returns. So I think returns are really also a hidden metric um, that a lot of people don't really pay attention to. So. Um, my wife's likely, thank God, she's not a, a big shopper. Uh, she's an accountant like me. Uh, she does buy stuff, but, knows. but um, you know, her friends, wives who, you know, they buy, jump on the Iconic and buy a lot of um, stuff on Black Friday sales. And the whole lounge room is full of like boxes and packaging. <laughs> and, you know, and the guy's like, holy crap, like how much money have you spent? Like, oh, no, no, don't worry. I'm going to return most of it. All right. Because yeah. I just want to buy it. I'm just going to, I just want to see if, it, if I like it. And so I think that the whole return culture is, is a really fascinating one. And, it's a real cost of business, and I think if you really want to tr- understand the efficacy of your Black Friday camp of your campaign, you need to consider all the discounts, of course, but then also returns, which don't, typically don't come into play probably one to two weeks after the sale. So mm-hmm. Black Friday, you know, end of November, it's really like in these two week periods post when you really start to start to consider all those returns um, to, to the campaign. Yep, and when you are considering Black Friday. How do you kind of weigh up 
the cost of, yes, we may give away some margin here versus we may attract new customers into our business that we haven't seen before or we wouldn't see any other way other than giving them this great discount, get them exposed to the brand and fingers crossed, they're going to shop with us again in the next 12, <laughs> 24 months at full price. So this is this is what marketers love because I, marketers love discounting as a, as a customer acquisition tactic, right? It's like, yeah, well, we're going to discount everything to own the market and get your brand out there. And it's like, okay, I get that. It's a legit strategy. Plenty of companies do it. But <laughs> I'll say but. You need to do the follow-on of understanding are those people coming back? Like do a true cohort analysis and follow the journey of that customer to, to see if they are coming back or are, are they are returning. I don't know anyone in my network who has actually done a true cohort analysis of their <laughs> of their individual customers. Nathan, you might, you know, you've seen a lot. Can you can you talk us through what a cohort analysis looks like? Okay. Because that so, might help people start doing it more. <laughs> yeah, that's a good, good point. So we'll start with the principle. So, you know, the, the principle of discounting at Black Friday is that you'll discount below your gross profit margin sometimes. So you're essentially taking a hit. You're, you're losing money on every customer or every sale that you make. So the idea there is that that cost is is an investment in, in a, because a potentially new customer knows about your brand, they like your product, and maybe they'll return in the future. So if you consider the customer acquisition costs, you need to consider you know, the, the, the loss you're making on the product or the margin. But then you also consider the Facebook or the, you know, the ad to get them in the first place. But then, so that forms part of your customer acquisition costs for that customer forever. And then it will continue to add if you, the more you market, spend on marketing. So what you then need to do is essentially track the behavior of that customer to actually understand if they're returning to buy more product from you in the future and, and then selling your product at a, at a margin where it starts to recoup that investment. And hopefully over the lifetime of that customer, they'll continue to be a, a sticky loyal customer where they'll spend more money with you um, over the lifetime than you spent to acquire them or you yeah, to basically buy them in the first place through discounting. So that's the concept of what lifetime value is and customer acquisition costs. So a cohort analysis is essentially just a, a fancy term to really understand how you can follow the customers throughout the journey and to understand, you know, if they're making money at the end. Yep. Yep. No, and it makes total sense. And to answer your question, I've never seen a business really do it really well. Yeah, um, we talk about it. Everyone talks about it. You know, <laughs> that's a great thing to do. <laughs> but I, I think at the end of a sale, what happens is everyone gets wrapped up in the excitement and to your point, is probably busy chasing returns, customer service, and everything else. Everyone goes, oh, thank God that's done. Yeah. What's the next Move thing? On. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, Easter coming up. Yeah, let's, let's prep yeah, for that. Yeah. <laughs> um, reading your book, one of the things that I, I really enjoyed reading about is your calculation of customer lifetime value. And we have spoken on this podcast about it before and about there's really simple ways to do it. Um, what I liked about your calculation of it is that it's all around the profitability of the customer, not the revenue. And I know we've talked about this already, but can you give the equation that you use to calculate customer lifetime value based on profit? Yeah. So when most people think about customer lifetime value, marketers, uh, and you know, they're incentivized to say this, uh, but marketers will typically look at revenue, right? They'll calculate customer lifetime value based on revenue. And, and yeah, sure, that tells me the gross value of a customer. But, but the problem is, as we said before, revenue is a vanity metric. You see, calculating lifetime value on revenue doesn't actually tell you if you're making money on that customer. So, for example, if you're buying products for 50 bucks and selling them to the market for 40, you're losing $10 in every product. It, your CLTV or your lifetime value equation is essentially useless because you're selling at a loss. Now, what you should be doing is calculating lifetime value based on gross profit not revenue. 
Now, there's a few ways to do it. They range from really sophisticated financial ways, but a really simple back of the envelope equation to calculate your lifetime value is simply taking your gross profit per customer per annum um, for the year and multiplying it by the number of years that you'd expect that customer to buy from you. Now, what you want to do is ensure that your customer acquisition costs are below that lifetime value, which essentially means that you're spending money to acquire customers that are actually value accretive to your business over the lifetime um, as a customer to your company. That's awesome. That's, that's really practical too. I love that. Thank you. We're almost out of time. I could keep talking and I didn't think I'd ever say this until I met you. I never thought I could talk about um, the economics of, of e-commerce for so long, but um, I really love the way you break it down. When you when you are looking at e-commerce businesses, what do you see as the biggest mistake e-commerce businesses are making? I know we've talked about GP, but where do you think most businesses go wrong? It doesn't even have to be a specific metric, but just in their overall outlook, where do you think we're going wrong? I think the, the biggest point, biggest, and this is no one's fault, but I think the biggest challenge is no one really knows what to look at. Um, and that's from a business owner's perspective. So if you look at, take a step back and I'll, I'll go into a bit of a my personal rant about um, education and our literacy system, but you go to school, uh, you know, you, you go to high school, sorry, you're not taught what a credit card is, not taught what compound interest is. And then suddenly you go to uni, buy a car, you get a mortgage, uh, you have kids. And then you start a business, right? <laughs> you start a business <laughs> without understanding any fundamental financial knowledge. And then you've got wages, you've got super, you've got baz, you've got payroll. So, and no one's really there to tell you what, what you need to be doing or what you should be uh, watching for, right? And again, the biggest thing that I, I, I biggest mistake I see uh, when I meet founders is they have no idea what they're looking at. And that's not their fault. They just don't know. Like you just, what do I trust? Do I look at Shopify? Uh, do, I look, you know, do I look at Shopify's platform? It tells me how many sales I made. Look at my bank balance. That's probably the most, the biggest source of truth because cash is cash. Cash is king. So I can trust that. But like then there's a zero thing. I don't even know what zero is. I don't, I don't know what a balance sheet is. That's confusing. So I just look at my cash. And I think that's, that's the biggest mistake I make is I think people really, if, if you're in business, you have a legal obligation to understand the financial position of your company. And so you, and you legally, and if you're, you're a director of a company, you legally have to know the state of your company at all times, forever, right? And saying that I have an accountant for that or saying I have a bookkeeper for that is not an excuse. Like you, you're our director, you're the one that's liable. Mm. You need to up, upskill yourself, like increase the level of literacy. Um, now, I don't want to plug my book, but I wrote the book to really help people lift their, their, their level of literacy to get them, to help them grasp some fundamental principles to, to just really take at least start a journey on getting top of their numbers because I find that, you know, successful businesses, you look at the best operators, they're all numbers people, right? The CEOs of the gross companies, mm-hmm. they, they think about their business as an investment, they know the numbers and I think everyone, every business owner must know their numbers. Um, yep. Yeah, rant. I just want to rant, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> it's a brilliant rant. But I think I think that's exactly right. It's an, and it's about those, and you must see it all the time, those people who see you as the dream killer is are the people that don't want to take control as well, whereas the people who really partner with you and see their account, accountant as kind of the person that will enable them to grow their business, you almost become the dream maker because you can point out where they're spending time on activities that they shouldn't be spending time on can dial up the areas that are really making the money um, to achieve those end goals. Yeah, I mean, I mean, financials is is a scary topic. It's very deep and personal, and I think that you know, as you said, burying your head in the sand and, and kind of saying that I'm not a numbers person is not an excuse. And and, and you're right. 
while we recommend to everyone listening to this, if you're in business, uh, you know, irrespective of you run the e-com business or service business or whatever, um, engage more with your accountants, right? Your accountant is there and your bookkeeper, potentially, if they've got good ones, but engage with them and, and really ask them for help. Ask them what these things mean. Don't just rely on the annual kind of financial statements that they send you every year because they're wrong. Most of the time, they're, they're, they're old and they're wrong. Um, they don't help you make decisions, right? Look at, engage with your accounting system, get help from your accountants and, and just, yeah, start the journey. And, and I said, the best business owners in the world know their numbers and I think everyone should. So, yeah, start there. Right, that is a great point to leave it on. Thank you very much. I think you've been really generous with what you've shared. We've talked about gross profit and how important that is as a solid metric and how to calculate that properly. Uh, talked about, especially for, uh, for e-commerce, warehousing and returns and the impact that that can have overall on your balance sheet, talked a little bit about Black Friday and customer lifetime value. And then overall, and I think this is the message that's coming through, is just know your numbers. Don't don't bury your hand, head in the sand. Get into it. But it, you don't have to know every number, right? You just have to know the key numbers, work out what those key numbers are for you and just stay on top of it. Yeah, exactly. Brilliant. Jason, where can people find you if they want to know more? Uh, I'm If you want to find me, I'm probably most active on LinkedIn. So just search me on LinkedIn, Jason Andrew. Uh, we have a blog um, on our company website, sbo.financial. There's a bunch of resources there uh, for all businesses um, and specifically com businesses as well. Um, and check out my book if, if you're interested uh, to, you know, to start the journey or want to lift your, your literacy game. Um, you can jump on my website. It's www.starknakednumbers.com. I literally downloaded it the other day, and I think it was, based on memory, about $12 on Amazon. Yeah, it's cheap. Best $12 spent ever. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry if you're going to put the price up between now and the podcast going live. No, but- well, the, the, the beautiful thing about digital product is there's no cogs, right? Like, So you can charge whatever you want, and I won't lose money. It's okay. But if you buy a physical book, you know, I need to charge a bit more because I need to you know, cover the cost of the printing. <laughs> and I'm sure you've worked out the unit cost. I, I did, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it'd be great if I didn't, Nathan. (laughs) (laughs) Mate, we're going to leave it there. Thank you so much for sharing that. And I hope everyone got a couple of things that they can go back now and look at whether it's zero, talk to their accountant, talk to their bookkeepers, um, just to polish up their numbers a little bit more um, to make sure that what we're doing and what we sweat over every day, all day is actually contributing to your end goal, which is to make a bit of money, have a nice lifestyle and um, serve your customers well. Exactly. Thanks, Jason. Thank you, Nathan. It was a pleasure. Thank you. So there you go. There's Jason, the dream killer, Andrew, spilling all things around e-commerce accounting. I found it fascinating. Um, I know it's not going to be everyone's cup of tea, but if you stuck in there and you really absorbed it and you apply some of Jason's principles, I think you will get infinite benefit for your business and for you personally in the coming years. So thank you, Jason, for being so generous. And like we said, if you like what Jason's on about, grab his book. It is packed with information and a really great read for about $12. Best education ever. As we said at the start, if you want more news and information around e-commerce, especially in Australia, sign up for 12high email. That's at highmail. So 12high.com.au forward slash highmail. Um, and we'll send that out regularly. Other than that, we'll see you back in a couple of weeks uh, for the next episode. See you then, guys. Bye. Bye.